It's good to be here. As we gather this morning, I want to remind us that we are on the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary homelands of the Arapaho, the Cheyenne, the Ute, and the Sioux. And I also want to remind us about a little bit of history, some of which you may know and some which you may not know because I learned a few things in my preparation for this morning. Uh, Abraham Lincoln declared this a national holiday, Thanksgiving, in 1863, uh, the last Thursday in November, and uh, thinking that that would probably coincide with the time of year that the Mayflower arrived on these shores. In 1941, FDR made it the fourth Thursday. Uh, didn't matter. That's why he changed it. I'm not sure why. But here's the really important dates. 1924 was the first Macy's Day Thanksgiving parade. In the 1870s, football became a Thanksgiving tradition. And here's my new favorite that I had no idea about. In 1953, Swanson's packaged what would become the first batch of TV dinners. They had 260 tons of turkey left over. And so they got 5,000 aluminum trays and they had an assembly line of ham packers, hand packers and they created a Thanksgiving-inspired meal with turkey, cornbread dressing, gravy, peas, and sweet potatoes and sold it for 98 cents. And they sold 10 million TV dinners in their first year. So there, you can share that at your dinner table uh, this afternoon. But on a more serious note, I trust we all know that the history of Thanksgiving is mostly a myth, and that the stories that we learned as children were not exactly accurate representations of how we came to call this nation home. Ahead of the 400th anniversary of the first Thanksgiving in 2019, David Silverman wrote a book called This Land is Their Land the Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the troubled history of Thanksgiving. And he took a new look at the Plymouth Colony's founding events, but he told it for the first time through the eyes of the Wampanoag people. When the pilgrims landed in 1620, their chief, Asamoquin, offered the new arrivals an étant, an informal alliance, mostly as a way to protect the Wampanoags against their rivals, the Narragansetts. And for 50 years, that was tested by colonial land expansion and the spread of disease and the exploitation of resources on the Wampanoag land. And then these tensions ignited into what is known as King Philip's War, or the Great Narragansett War. And it devastated the Wampanoags and it forever shifted the balance of power in favor of the European arrivals. And so today, for the Wampanoags, they remember the pilgrims' entry to their homeland as a day of deep mourning, rather than a moment of giving thanks. In an interview in the Smithsonian, David Silverman says, I've had a great many conversations with Wampanoag people, in which they talk about how burdensome Thanksgiving is for them, particularly for their kids. Wampanoag adults have memories of being a kid during Thanksgiving season, sitting in school, feeling invisible, and having to wade through the nonsense that the teachers were talking about. That's David Silverman I'm quoting. They felt like their people's history as they understood it was being misrepresented. 
They felt that not only their classes, but society in general was making light of historical trauma, which weighs around their neck like a millstone. It's a tough story, but it's a true story. And so as we remember all that, and with all that being said, the gospel is, what, good news. So here I am. What is the good news for this Thanksgiving? The gospel is a very familiar passage, and it's part of Jesus's, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He starts with the Beatitudes, and then he gives some clarification about the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And then he gives some tips on almsgiving and prayer, including the introduction of what we call the Lord's Prayer. And then he gives some words about money and possessions and talking about how we can't serve God and money. And at this point in Palestine in the first century, if there were any Episcopalians in the crowd, they were looking at their watches. And if there were Baptists or Pentecostals in the crowd, they were saying, amen, and preach it, brother. Because then we get to the text for the day, today, and it's still the same sermon. Do not worry. Do not worry about your life, about your food and drink, about your clothing. Do not worry. Now, some of you know that I'm a child of a Jewish mother and two Jewish grandmothers. So do not worry <laughs> is a ridiculous teaching. How do we not worry? Or as I walk or drive through my neighborhood, uh, I-25 and Holly or, or uh, Yale or Hamden around that area, more and more folks with signs on street corners, some holding small children, and I see more and more tents lining the High Line Canal and the sides of I-25. How do I not worry about those folks? And even more importantly, how do they not worry? It's a struggle, right? Is God really caring for all God's children? And I want to say yes. God is, because that's what God does. So for me, this is where the rubber meets the road as we celebrate and reflect on Thanksgiving as an event and gratitude as a spiritual practice. Jesus says, strive first for the kingdom of God, or what I like to call the commonwealth of God, or the kingdom of God, I'm sure you've heard, and God's righteousness. One of the meanings in Greek of righteousness is actually equity, that all have an equal shot, if you will. The fullness of the commonwealth of God is offered for everyone. And in Hebrew, righteousness is often associated with the righteous acts of God, which is translated in different ways in the scriptures as kindness, abundant benevolence, I love that one. Abundant benevolence, gracious acts, and gracious deliverances. Isn't that lovely? It's not just legal correctness. It's covenantal faithfulness. And as we strive for this commonwealth, this righteousness, if you will, all folks will not need to worry 
about life, about food, about drink, about clothing. I, I have a new hero that I've been uh, preaching about. It's one of the great things about being a traveling preacher. You can use your, all your good stuff, <laughs> or at least what I think is good. I'll let y'all be the judge. But this new hero of mine, his, his name is Austin Perrine, or Perrine, P-E-R-I-N-E. He's four years old, and he's a hero for me and many others, particularly in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, several years ago, Austin and his father were watching one of those nature shows about pandas, and the panda, the mother panda, was leaving her cubs. And the father says, Austin began to get concerned, and I told him that the panda would be homeless. And Austin, who was four, didn't understand or know the meaning of the word homeless. And he says, my dad said, it's somebody who doesn't have a home or mom and dad around. And so the dad decided he wanted to help Austin understand the meaning of homelessness. And so they went to the uh, city shelter in Birmingham. And Austin immediately said, can we feed them? And the dad said, I didn't expect to feed homeless people that day, but when a four-year-old asks you, what can you say? So they went to Burger King, and Austin picked up an order of chicken sandwiches, and he told his dad that he wanted to use his allowance for that. Four years old. And so this began a weekly thing. And uh, so he began to do this. He would go to the parks. Uh, Burger King gave him $1,000 a month allowance for a year so that he could do this. And uh, he just kept going and going. The mayor called him the city's ambassador. The mayor said, it's one of our younger generation that gets it and understands the importance of helping others. And it's one that we all want to cherish and make of importance, which is showing love. So when he goes to work to do this, he wears all blue, sneakers, shorts, a t-shirt, and a cape. And there's hashtag show love on the front of the cape. In, in bold red letters. And this is what Austin says. Show love means you care about someone no matter what they look like. Show love is his superhero model. To me, Austin's story personifies striving for the commonwealth, working that all might have food and drink and life and clothing. There is plenty of collective worry to go around. If my mother and grandmothers were alive, they would be beside themselves all the time. There's plenty to go around, as you and I know. So I invite us this Thanksgiving to take our cue from Austin, working for righteousness, that abundant benevolence, that equity, that faithfulness that all have what they need. We have much to be grateful for today. We are deeply, deeply loved by God. In a few minutes, we will pray and celebrate what we call the Great Thanksgiving, Eucharist from Eucharistia in Greek, which means Thanksgiving. It is an icon of a faithful, righteous Thanksgiving meal where all are welcome, loved, and fed. This Thanksgiving table stretches back into the heavens 
so we commune with all the saints. This Thanksgiving table is here and now where we commune with one another. And this Thanksgiving table extends forward out the doors and into the future that more and more children of God will not have to worry. And we can all be grateful together for God's goodness to us and love for us and strive for God's kingdom, commonwealth, for all God's children. Amen.